Thomas Tarrell. Okay, when you're ready, let's just launch into it because um, because I feel good about this one. Okay, I'm ready. So, hello and welcome to <laughs> episode twenty. Yay! Yeah, you got it right this time. Exactly. We're in the yeah. number the twoies, the number that start with two. <laughs> the tooties. Uh, t- <laughs> um, in this episode, I'm Darren Nash. I'm John Conway. <laughs> and in this episode. I think now, obviously, we have a well-honed, uh, what's it called, agenda, timetable, <laughs> schedule. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the new Godzilla trailer. Oh, which I forgot to watch. Are oh, you idiot. You need, do you want to stop recording? Go and watch it. <laughs> I'll do it later. Okay. We have a whole load of crap. Uh, we, uh, a whole load of... Uh, <laughs> We have a whole load of crap. That's kind of true, but we have a whole load of catch for questions. Some exciting catch for questions. Maybe we should change that to crap for questions. Crap for questions. <laughs> um, um, but first, we've got some FU. I beg your pardon? FU, follow up. Oh, yes, we have. We have. Um, well, yeah, what do you want? Oh, yeah, can I, can, before I start talking, before you start talking, let me stop you there. Um, <laughs> Okay, I listened to the last episode, and uh, now uh, not very happy with it because there's there's again. I think I said this for a previous episode. There's some where I talk for a long time, like it seems like half an hour. It may only be five to ten minutes. It's terrible. I don't like it at all. So I'm going to try and limit myself this time. If I start talking, I'm going to stop talking after two minutes because otherwise it's just. I'm sure that will. That will do wonders for the flow of the podcast, Darren. <laughs> just, just stop in the middle of an explanation. I seriously think it's... Oh, oh, but first, before we get started on this podcast, because we keep forgetting to mention it, there's a new tape here, Darren. Ah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Remind our listeners about the new tape. Thank you. Yes, I understand. It's called Tepris Cabamani. It was published in Journal of Mammalogy by uh, Mario Coswell and colleagues. And... Um, and, and there's a T-shirt to celebrate this momentous discovery. <laughs> there is. There so is. The, you too can can tell people about the uh, the, the fabulous new tape here. Um, if you go to tetzoo.com, there's a link to our red bubble shop. We can get our T-shirts. Or stickers if you can't afford a T-shirt. <laughs> mm. um, we should have mentioned uh, within one of the recent episodes the fact that we're, uh, it's the it's the end of February now, obviously, but but in the middle of February, February fifteenth was World Pangolin Day. Yeah. Easy to remember because Valentine's Day. I love Valentine's Day. I'm so romantic. Look at these flowers. Look. See? Yeah, it looks very nice. Yeah, oh, great for our great for our podcast listeners. Yeah, <clears throat> um, they still they look great and they still smell great. Orchids. Um, uh, so World Pangolin Day, I understand, is an annual event, which. I I definitely remember being you know knowing of previous World Pangolin Days, but not knowing the date well enough to do anything about it on like Tetsu. And pangolins are one of those groups of animals where 
there's a few things that were announced on World Pangolin Day where people said, like John Hutchinson, I think, did something on What's in John's Freezer, um, which is a blog everyone should check out, What's in John's Freezer. Um, uh, John wrote, like, you know, some amazing facts about pangolins, cool things about their jaws and the tongues and, and that sort of stuff. And, um, and that's the sort of thing I would, would like to do at uh, Tet Zoo. Obviously not covering the same ground that John Hutchinson wrote about. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot to say about pangolins, so I'd like to do that. So... We miss World Pangolin Day, it's a shame, but I'm sure we won't next year. Um, yes, let's do a pangolin special next year. Oh, pangolins are great. They're really great. Let's and they're not, as, they're not as samey as people tend to think. There's a, right. which is don't get into it now because we don't have time. <laughs> um, let's talk about T-shirts later on but, but, um, yeah. and other merchandise. <clears throat> but I think we should say briefly now, um, we've mentioned Tet Zoo Time before, which is run by John Turmel and Alberta Claw. An adventure time style um, uh, webcomic that's, that's online. And, and they finished their first story now, which revolves around the subject of eagles killing large animals. Um, and Moa, Moa are major characters in, this, in the first story, which led to the whole... We an interesting discussion. Uh, uh, from, from my point of view, it, was, it, was, it, it happened on both face, Facebook and Twitter at the same time, but about what the plural of mower is. Yes. Mowers. <laughs> and <laughs> what, was it, what was it I said? It was, well, that's if you're speaking English. <laughs> and and, and you, said, you said, well, yes, that is, what, that is the convention I'm generally following here. Because in, in Maori... Uh, Moa is a word, and thanks to Mike Keezy for you know some information on this, and to other people as well. Mike Dickerson, uh, who's a Moa expert, uh, weighed in on this as well. Um, um, the Moa is a word that doesn't technically have; it's neither plural nor singular, and it needs a qualifier at the start as to whether you're saying singular Moa or plural Moa. Yes. So, and I forget. So it's like different words. It's like a singular Moa is a ten Moa, and a, a bunch of Moa is a something else mower one mower so, several mower yeah so when we yes. transpose that into english people have been saying ah plural of mower there's no s on the end which is the same for all plurals in maori uh, they are a different they have a different qualifier at the start but um uh, and and in um uh, in the mower literature uh people have increasingly latched onto this you can find statements in Articles and books where people say, "Yeah, the plural of moa is not moas; it is actually moa." But, um, but yeah, there's a case to be made that that's not that's not wrong, but that's not necessarily right either. So, at the moment, um, I just in general, I, you know, I like to avoid the irregularization of English. If you've got a chance to make up a new term, don't make it irregular. Make it like all the other things, because English has already got too many little exceptions all over the place. Don't let's not keep adding more. Mm, mm. If we've got a chance, let's try and keep it regular, because the yeah. irregular stuff will happen anyway. Yeah. Yes. So, so, so Mo Moa are on. It was funny that that all happened at the. I mean, I'm working on a manuscript about Moa, and I'm also working on cassowaries at the moment, among other things, right now. So it was kind of funny that happened. But um, yeah, check out Tetsu Time, um, which the URL is time.tetsu.com. Good work, um, Albert. And John Termel have um, been adding new kind of extra bits of information to the Tetsu Time Tumblr. There's like new images of characters and stuff like that. So definitely keep an eye on that. And 
was it last week also saw the launch of another Tetsu-themed webcomic, the, uh, well, it's called the Tetrapodzoology comic. It's produced by Ethan Kosak of The Black Mud Puppy, which is a, an online, uh, uh, well, a webcomic, as they're known. It's got to say online comic or webcomic, but I think they're the same thing. I think I think it also exists in dead tree form as well. And uh, Ethan, basically, again, check this out. We'll put uh, a link in the show notes. Um, Ethan basically takes interesting snippets or semi-amusing snippets from Tetsu and illustrates them. And yep. uh, the second one just came out. The first one was about um, ducks. Uh, ducks. There's my, yes. my famous duck-based rant. <laughs> and, and the second one is about um, what herons versus lampreys. So, uh, so yeah. Yes. That and that's, well. a, that's at comic.tetsu.com. Wow, how come you know these off the top of your head? Because I made them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one is one is like the comic of the podcast, and one is the comic of the blog, isn't it? So yeah, time yeah. is sort of based on the podcast, and comic is kind of based is based on the, on the blog. So as you can imagine, the money is rolling in. We are such yeah. media moguls. We are. It's uh, finally hit the big time. Uh, <laughs> what Leonardo DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street says, I was making so much money, I didn't know how to spend it, or something along those lines. Um, which, and it, that's exactly what our life is like. Yep. Um, yep. I, I like Leonardo DiCaprio. He's a, he's a good guy. Um, he donated $3 million to conservation, like, couple of weeks ago he's, he's he's long done quite a lot so he's got his own conservation foundation um and there's there's a couple there's not many but there's a few uh like rich celebrity type people that actually do give a lot of money to conservation-based charities so right now we come to the start yeah. of the, sh- the part of the show that previously has been named cow and keezy corner <laughs> or keezy and cow corner but which i would like to rename because no i want that as a new jingle um regular slot because oh my god the screw-ups in uh answering people's previous uh questions cash for questions um where do i start no refunds <laughs> <laughs> so the the biggest the most egregious error errors concern this issue of primates in North America which you remember we dealt with last time at length yes and uh and I went ah ekamarichala and uh, uh no primates in North America until humans and sasquatch <laughs> the sasquatch stuff was a joke if you haven't listened to the last episode um first of all this is extremely embarrassing. I feel very bad about this, but I, sh- I should know this stuff, but I've just become rusty on it. Um, in talking about North American primates, I said that some of the animals I had in mind from the Paleogene, surviving up to the end of the Oligocene, I said that they were plesiodapiforms. Some of them are plesiodapiforms, but of course, when you're talking about uh, North American primates, oh, Darren, 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 no, it's omomyoforms and adapiforms. So these more lemur-like uh, primates, omomyoforms and adapiforms. So animals like Echomarichichala and so on um, are members of, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, forms yeah. and stuff. So, yeah, totally screwed up there. Just, uh, I'm sorry. 
Uh, just like I say, it just, I just if I go for a few months without writing about something, and, and I, I haven't written, I've, I wrote a lot about primates last year for reasons that will soon become obvious, but um, it's for the big book, book project. Uh, and the move, sorry, I could stop there. Moving on, North American primates, of course. I think I said something about primates, the the platyrrhines from South America moving north, but um, along those you know notes. Uh, along that note, like a point, whatever. Um, well, of course, if you're talking now, I made the mistake here. I'm sure a lot of people do this where, wherever they live in the world. You know, the, the, even even Americans. Not this isn't just a thing that Europeans would do. But I forgot that North America doesn't mean the United States of America. <laughs> North America, <laughs> North America includes Mexico and uh, Central America. Central America is part of North America. So. If people say there are no, what, what about, what's the deal with North American primates? Like, well, there's loads of North, well, there are North American primates because there are howler monkeys and so on that got into Central America and into Mexico and occur <laughs> quite far north in Mexico. In fact, are pretty much on the, on the edge of the United States. So we should have mentioned that, mm. and, we didn't, and we didn't. Thank you to Cameron McCormick and others for flagging that one up. Um, and, of course, I didn't mention... Feral monkeys, they're feral. It's just an interesting aside, the fact that there are colonies of several species of non-native primates in Florida and his, in Texas and other places. So, yeah. um, and the yeah. skunk ape, of course. <laughs> <laughs> See, we know this stuff really well because we are familiar with the cryptozoological literature. But to those of you, given that a lot of our listeners are more interested in, uh, like, Real animals. Science. Um, <laughs> interested in paleontology and stuff. There's the reports of mystery hominid type primates in North America don't all describe Sasquatch and they're not all limited to the Pacific Northwest. People have um, people like claim to have seen diverse hominid type creatures in North America. So some cryptozoologists have have created what they call the multi-species model where they say there are two, three, four, five, or even more kinds of hominids awaiting discovery in North America, with things like the skunk ape of the southeast, <clears throat> well, elsewhere on the east coast. That's maybe a different species or subspecies, maybe a different species, totally different lineage even, from, um, from Sasquatch. And there's a whole interesting literature there. Uh, anyone who's read Coleman and Huige's, uh, what's it called, Mystery Primates of the World? We'll, we'll know this stuff. It's... Uh, Pretty interesting. <laughs> interesting slash amusing. Um, yes. Surviving dry pithecines in the, yeah, the eastern half of North America and stuff. So um, I wanted to talk about Fasolosuchus, the Rausukian, following Brad McFeeter's um, comments from last time. But I haven't had time to dig out Bonaparte's uh, paper, which I wanted to do. So I'll, I'll try and do that next time. And I meant to do it before the show. But I can't. Yeah. Do you know why? Why? I'm locked in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and part of my library is in a kind of like thing that's built onto the side of the house. A sort of We call it the sideway. It's just like adjacent building here at Tezu Towers. And um, my, uh, my mother-in-law was here looking after the kids last night because Tony and I went out to the cinema to see The Monuments Men movie, which is very good. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, and... Sheila kept my keys and I'm locked in the house so I couldn't go out into the sideway and find my 
literature on Ralph Sukians because it's all out there. So uh, that's why I couldn't read up on Fasola Sukas. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty funny. So when are you when are you going to be let out, if ever? My brother-in-law Matthew has uh, dropped the keys around just within the last few minutes, so I'm released. <laughs> go out, go out again. <laughs> um, You're free. <laughs> right. <laughs> what other things did you screw up last episode? Well, nomina dubia. So. Um, uh, we spoke about Pristicamp scenes slash Planocraniids, these um, uh, semi-cursorial paleogene uh, crocodilians. Crocodilians with a Y, because they are crown crocodilians, apparently. Crown crocodiliforms. Um, and based on what Chris Brochu says in that recent paper, he says that because Pristicampsis is a nomen dubium, then therefore the whole concept of a Pristicampsine or Pristicampsid group is... We shouldn't use that term. We shouldn't use that. We can't use the name Pristicampsini anymore. That's why he says we should use Planocraniidae because that's the next valid name for this group based on a recognised genus, Planocranius from uh, China. And this created a whole storm of uproar and uh, unhappy people because the ICZN, the International Commission on Zoological Nature, does not mandate anywhere. Doesn't specifically say that if you mentioned this in the podcast, didn't you? Yeah. I did, yeah, yeah, you did, right. So we did cover this briefly, but um, well, we're covering it briefly again. There's the fact that the fact that there seems to be um, remarkably, it turned out that I was correct. Remarkably, for one, <laughs> yes, um, yeah. yeah, it's it's kind of like a, and again, uh, I I can only apologise by saying it's something I've become rusty on. I did I did kind of know about this because I remember looking into it for some other groups. There are quite a few groups of animals where the um, the type genus is suspected to be or argued to be by some people a nomen dubium and therefore some people have said well therefore you can't use the family name uh, one recent example is stegosaurus it's been suggested the type specimen for stegosaurus is non-diagnostic therefore stegosaurus is non-diagnostic therefore blah 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 this this chain and other people say that's that's nonsense that's arguable um but there does seem to be a fairly popular idea particularly in the dinosaur literature that if your type genus is non-diagnostic then you can't use the family name so this is why dinodon is a classic example the the name dinodon applied to tyrannosaurid teeth turns out to be non-diagnostic so therefore dale russell publishes a paper saying we can't use the name dinodontidae for these animals anymore that's why we have to go with tyrannosauridae and matt of the unpronounceable surname um go on you say it martin nyack yeah him he says uh uh, let's give another plug for his book, seeing as I just insulted him. What's his book called? Feathered Dinosaurs. A Field Guide to Mesozoic Birds and Other Winged Dinosaurs by Matthew P. Martinuk. And um, uh, I just want to tell people to buy this book, because if they're interest interested in feathered dinosaurs, well, birds, mesozoic birds, buy this book. You'll love it. Um, I want to talk more about books in a moment. But yeah, he's big on this, which is why he resurrects lots of... Uh, yeah, so... We still kind of need to get this sorted out because there do seem to be different opinions on this. There isn't anything specifically about it in the ICZN. So, so there you go. So just this is this is just a, a kind of follow up from what I said last time. That obviously I don't think I don't think an extended discussion of the status of Nomenadubia will be thrilling podcasting yeah, for the. Uh, I, I want to make one point because I'm very much on one side of this. But because genus and species level taxonomy is so fluid that lots of older things are based on scrappy material, 
and the more new stuff we get, the less stable they get. It seems utterly crazy to me to let that bubble up the chain of names. Uh, you'll end up in a complete mess with everything changing all the time, and I just think that's a disaster. So I think that if it's diagnosable just to the clade, right? So obviously it's not great if the material to Stegosaurus doesn't even belong in the Stegosauridae, right? That's, that's not great. Um, but if it's diagnosable to the clade that we're talking about, then that's fine. Just keep the keep the family name. It doesn't matter whether it's a <clears throat> Nova Dubia within that sort of, you know, it's what's the what's the word? Insertocetus. So it's Stegosauridae insertus. Is that is that what it is? Insertocetus? Insertocetus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean yeah. of uncertain position, yeah. Yeah, uh, then that's fine. That's good enough. Mm. That's what I think. That's my okay, point. All right. Okay. Right. Um uh, Mike Habib visited us at the National Oceanography Centre University of Southampton the other day and gave a brilliant talk on, uh, well, it was actually on the history of vertebrate flight, so bats and birds, uh, as well as pterosaurs, lots on quad launching, uh, but also about the mechanics of avian launch, um, it being well known, increasingly well known, that birds rely predominantly on uh, hind limb leaping in order to power, to, ge to generate their, hind, uh, their, their launch. <clears throat> Um, and then the whole forelimb launch stuff that's been done on pterosaurs, exciting stuff. And lots of really cool new stuff on uh, stuff, stuff, stuff. I've got to be more precise in what I say. Use more. There's, one, there's one podcast where I, I think I use the term uh, and things like that like about 50 times. I sound like an idiot. Um, more than an idiot, than normal anyway. Um, yeah, lots of new data on the proportions and anatomy of uh, Quetzalcoatlus, based on his analysis of uh, unpublished specimens, and that was really cool. And I'd love to kind of scoop it, but I shouldn't really because he should, he should get a paper out of that. But neat stuff, and pretty much everything done on Ansdarkids that, that I would consider worthwhile or reliable in the last several years is consistent with or supports the terrestrial stalking model that Mark Whitten and I published. Right, uh, I think that was the end of follow up, wasn't it? Um. Uh, uh, I, I, well, bleh, while, while it's on my mind, uh, from many episodes back, oh, what are you recording? Yeah. <laughs> while it's on my mind, from many episodes back, edit that bit out. Mm. So that's that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember mentioning the Richter scale and me saying, yeah. how come journalists do that? Okay, Pete Buckles um, tells me that um, Earthquake these days is obviously, like I said, they don't use the Richter scale anymore. They, they use a different system of measuring magnitude but journalists don't know this and think they're being well not all journalists i'm sure but the journalists that i have in mind they think they're being clever by saying ah they must be talking about the richter scale it's 6.3 that must be on the richter scale so they put in richter scale when it's actually using a different kind of magnitude thing so um yes but there is a there is another point to this in that the the newer scale um yeah corresponds to the Richter scale roughly so it's not actually doesn't well it's but doesn't it wasn't it that the Richter scale only goes up to a certain point and uh, it's God. some because it's because it's logarithmic no it's is it logarithmic it is logarithmic yes I think so so earthquakes that are actually really different have similar um numbers yes uh which which confuse people so that's why they we shouldn't. We really shouldn't have gone down this path. I know. Well, I think I think they do need another more publicly consumable uh, yeah. scale, which isn't logarithmic, because logarithmic scales are hopeless. 
Yeah, I think I think that's what's happened. They've invented a no, no. Had... The new one is logarithmic. That's what I'm saying. It it actually corresponds to the Richter scale. So oh, right. A magnitude six point three on the it's a something magnitude scale. I I forget. Is the is mass... roughly equivalent to a six point three on the Richter scale. That's the, right. Um. So. They so are mass, they are mass... somewhat interchangeable. That's why the error isn't so egregious. Okay. The Massali Massali scale. Does that sound right? Uh, well, whatever. Okay. But, well, yeah, we're going to have to do more follow up yeah, on our stupid follow up there. Yeah. No, sorry, completely pointless. What now? Cash for questions. Cash for questions. Or, as we like to say, <coughs> cash for questions. questions! <laughs> um. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Let's leave. Well. Hmm. We've got a lot of questions this time, so let's let's. Where, where should we start? Should we start with the uh, the big ones, the little ones, in random order? All right. Uh, okay. So this one's from Blake Smith, who we all know from the um, oh yeah, Blake Monster Talk podcast, who was a guest on the show episode. Uh, I forget, but yes, Monster Tetrapodcasts was the title of that show. Blake Smith has a question. If an alien from another planet or another dimension, wait, no, let's stick to serious inquiries only. So this creature from another planet arrives and it has four limbs. Does this automatically qualify as a tetrapod? Right. What do you think? The answer is no. Okay. Uh, because I think tetrapod is not a popular term. It's a, cl it's a term for a clade, which... Yeah. <clears throat> um, and if it was a popular term, it would be more confusing. Things like bird can be used in ambiguous contexts. Um, uh, popular terms are more ambiguous, but a scientific term like tetrapod, absolutely not. It's it's a clade, and that alien is not part of the clade. Yeah, there's 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 um the very very first article of tetrapod's audio version 3 the scientific american version the very first article specifically addresses this what is a tetrapod because i say there that there's three possible definitions the first one is that if the term tetrapod is meant to mean anything with four legs then an alien with four legs could indeed be a tetrapod or i mentioned in the article there are some butterflies that walk on four legs so we all know that insects have got six legs but there are butterflies that walk on four legs they have got a first set of legs but they're, they're kind of little reduced things so technically some you know people have sometimes referred to them as tetrapod butterflies so that's one possible use and if that's the use you're going for then yes a four-legged alien would be a tetrapod but that's yeah, as you've just said that's not how we use the term tetrapod we I would say that those bottles are te uh, bottles, <laughs> but bottles, butterflies. <laughs> Always with the bottles. <laughs> it's quite a good word. Um, <laughs> um, those butterflies are tetrapodal. Yeah, you might not you may, that yeah. might be sort of a technical term for um, how many yeah. limbs you use to locomote. But yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't, yeah. So the term, yeah. So exactly, the term tetrapoda is a specific, specifically a name attached to a lineage of animals. And then there's two competing definitions. Is it the whole of the, that lineage, the whole of that branch? So is it all of the limb and digit-bearing uh, vertebrates? So basically a subgroup of fleshy-finned fishes, the ones that have limbs and digits. So everything from ichthyostega and acanthostega, those kinds of animals, all the way up to modern reptiles and mammals and whatnot. 
That's the one I use. That's the definition I prefer. So tetrapoda is the name for the whole of that branch. Mm-hmm. Or is it annoyingly some um, phylogeneticists have used a crown group definition of tetrapoda? Yeah, so they crown just, yeah, group phylogeneticists. It's, it's, well, I'm, I'm, I, I am totally inconsistent on the crown group concept. I think it's some, there's some cases where because I'm inconsistent because I think that we should agree among ourselves as to what is most useful in a group of organisms. And I think for some groups, classic example is birds, some groups, a name like Aves is best applied to the crown, and in other cases, it's, it's not. I mean, don't, let's not get started talking about birds, because that's throw us off on a tangent. But for tetrapoda, I think that if you look at the literature, whenever people talk about tetrapods, they do mean ichthyostega and acanthostega and those kinds of animals and all the other tetrapods. They don't mean let's apply only to the advanced um, the crown group. The cr- crown groups are groups that are delimited by living taxa. So a crown group tetrapoda would include all the living amphibians as well as all the reptiles and birds and all the mammals, but it wouldn't include things like ichthyostega, acanthostega, and maybe things like you know huge important fossil groups like temnospondyls. Maybe if they're outside crown tetrapoda, which is debatable, but you know maybe they are. Uh, and the people who want tetrapoda restricted to the crown, they use the term. Actually, they've been a little bit silly. They've used two different terms. They call the the whole of that group either stegocephali or stegocephalia. So stegocephalians, which of course is like an old, you know, oldie timey name that people will know from old books. So um, so that's so there's three different definitions for tetrapoda, and the one that I use throughout tetrapod zoology, and the one which is therefore most consistent with the theme of the podcast and everything, is that all of the limb and digit bearing fleshy finned bony fishes mm-hmm. so te- tetrapods are a subgroup of fleshy finned fishes which are a subgroup of bony fishes um so everything <clears throat> from ichthyostega and acanthostega on up i hate to say up when talking about evolution but you know all the all and all of their descendants and relatives even if they then lose limbs and digits obviously dolphins and snakes and whatever are, are still tetrapods because they are within that clade there we go yeah answered answer bish bash bosh back of the nets (laughs) right okay this is from it's funny when people don't include their real names so necropolis studios oh yeah maybe it's several people good old studios (laughs) good old necropolis (laughs) necky for short um i know you're writing about monitors lately and i've read and i think i've observed in captivity that varanus acanthurus yeah a social yeah can you tell me about what is known about how their social structure works? Do we know anything about their social groups and, how the, and if they signal each other? Are there very, any other social monitors? Very, very cool question. And so, yeah, there have been, for people who know who, who follow tetrapodology, they know this already, there have been a couple of recent articles on, um, yeah, on, on goannas, varanids, monitor lizards. I need to know a lot more. There's a huge group of animals, huge diversity in them. And this, now, first of all, I'll say that there's, and I'm going to try and stick to my two-minute rule here. Two minutes talking. Yeah. Doesn't mean yeah. I answer the question yeah. in two minutes. It means I stop after two minutes. Yeah. Um, and I have to otherwise, go. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you can see me. I'll give you some kind of visual <laughs> signal. Um, as opposed to an ac- acoustic signal. or, or uh, yeah. Um, tactile signal, which would be quite hard over, over Skype. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we've already got... We already know... We know in inverted commas 
that there's okay there are I'll start again there are some indications that um sociality of some form gregariousness you know hanging around in groups pair bonding maybe living in twos and threes there are some indications that those kinds of things are present in members of diverse varanid lineages because there are different anecdotes where people and and unfortunately there are as anecdotes you know there are not detailed studies but where people say i saw two or three you know monitors varanids goannas hanging out at the same time and i think that there was some social behavior going on this has been reported for lace goannas for komodo dragons for um merton's water monitors and for canopy goannas at least and, and others as well so there's some indication of some social behavior, which you would expect, given that social behavior of various kinds is widespread. We know it's widespread in all kinds of lizards, and some snakes as well, and um, uh, goannas, varanids, monitors. I should start using just one term for that group. I'm going to go for monitors. Monitors, monitors in general are pretty smart anyway. They're, they're thought to be like among the most sophisticated, among the most you know intelligent of uh, uh, socially complex of uh, of lizards of squamates. But then taking this like to the next level is the fact that in um, Australia, a couple of Australian species, most notably in spiny-tailed goannas or spiny-tailed monitors, often, or, well, it's called ridge-tailed monitors or ridge-tailed goannas. And if you know of them through their appearance in the pet trade, they're called Ackies. <laughs> Ackies. <laughs> because their name is Varanus acanthurus. So, of course, what would you do but abbreviate that to Ackies? Um, one complication with this group is that it's a species... What? Two minutes. Two, Two minutes. minutes. <laughs> 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 One complication with this group of animals is that it's a species complex. So when people talk of Ackies or Ridgedale monitors or spiny tail monitors, they're not talking about, you know, one animal. They're talking about a complex of probably probably three or four or more species. And um, so these are fairly small Australian goannas, part of this like major Australian Odatrian lineage, these so-called dwarf monitors, dwarf goannas, dwarf varanids, uh, as in like left, less than 70 centimetres long. Most Odatrians are even smaller than that, like less than 30 centimetres long. Spiny-tailed, because obviously they really cool, you know, chunky tails, like big spines, well, big spines, small spines, but rosa spines on them. They, they're very, comparatively, they're sedentary compared to like, you know, there are some varanids that are out there walking for hours and hours at a day. Um, like peacock monitor, goannas and uh, other species, whereas um, uh, ackies kind of spend a lot of time hanging out, stuck in like crevices and rocks and stuff. And um, um, I'm going all over the place with this mm. as usual. But the point is that several uh, people have reported uh, observing or finding large colonies of these lizards. Uh, Steve Irwin uh, spoke about this, the late Steve Irwin wrote about this and reported it in one or two articles. Steve Irwin, for those who don't know, he wasn't just a TV, you know, character. He wasn't just a guy who was, you know, uh, making a living from poking animals and annoying them. He actually did do, uh, he published academic papers, um, not lots, but he, he certainly has stuff in the peer-reviewed literature. And he really did collect a lot of, you know, in interesting field data on crocs and goannas and snakes. Um, and he reported finding a large colony of um, spiny-tailed uh, goannas. And there's a couple of papers. There's a 1973 one in which the author reports finding 22 spiny-tailed... Um... Now, hold on, I might, I might be getting confused here because some... 
discussions of spiny-tailed goannas actually refer to another species, Storrs goanna, which was named in 1966. And this one is colonial as well. There's like people have found big colonies of these. So big colonies talking about 20 or 30 animals found inhabiting the same kind of burrow system. And this 1973 paper, I think it was reported as being of spiny-tailed goannas, but it might actually be of Storrs goanna, I can't remember now. But they reckoned that in an area of about 750 square kilometers, uh, square kilometers, no, it, 750 square meters, they reckon there are about 50 of these animals, enough for it to be like classes of colony where there's like tight social interaction going on, where there's actually animals sharing burrows and hanging out together. And so, and basically at the moment, that's all the information we have, the fact that people say that they have observed these creatures living in, you know, there's a large number of them in the same place, there's got to be social interaction going on, there's got to be something complex, and there is they're living in burrows, they are sharing burrows, they're presumably digging burrows uh, together. And I would like to talk about the whole issue of burrow complexity in goannas, but I don't want to now because there's a, um, a really interesting paper which is in review right now that um, I'm going to be covering on Tetsuo and I think we should talk about another time. But um, basically that's what we know so far. So I don't think it really adds to any of the any information other than what, the, you know, was this from Necropolis Studios, this question? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I can't say that we can really add substantially to the to the knowledge that Necropolis Studios put into the <laughs> put into the question. But yes, they are colonial. People have said they found a whole bunch of them. But that's all we know. There's not like someone's someone's done any detailed tag and release studies or, you know, there's no no one's put little cameras down their dens and filmed them. Someone needs each to, other you know, and, go and sit make like a monitor for six months. Someone needs Game to do that trust, kind of research. You know. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Acclimatise yourself to... Yeah. Um, it's not, not acclimatise. What's it called? Habituate when you habit, yeah. Habituate them to you, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that they just so, do their normal thing. Maybe they have done that and they've published it and I haven't seen it because I can't pretend mm. to know everything. Maybe they've done it and they haven't published it and it's just a matter of time before it appears in the literature. Or maybe no one really has done this and, after all, a lot of interesting questions about monitors are only being investigated uh, now. Uh, there's like a big surge of interest in this group right now. So, yeah, that's all I can say right now. Right. And, and I would say to, any, to anyone seriously interested in monitor lizards, do get Pianka, King and King's Varanoid Lizards of the World, which is, I have it right here, 588 pages, 588 pages of uh, Varanid-based goodness. Um, uh, look, 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 see, there it is. Ta-da! Okay, uh, yeah, let's let's move on to this one. Do you think any other lineage of animals could have dominated the planet the way humans have, without similar, similarly, 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 dexterous fingers and thumbs? If birds were on top of the heap, how would they build a heap without thumbs? Stupid birds. And this is from Mike at Terranscapes. Mike at Terranscapes. Um, well, if, if we suppose that humans hadn't evolved, um, or hominids, I, yeah, let's broaden it out, uh, you know, all human-type catarines hadn't evolved, then is, it, is that, is that the, the, the gist of the question? Would we still end would we still up with... Oh, would we end up with human-like... A human-like culture, because obviously, if 
I would say if humanity hadn't evolved, then well, the world would just be full of animals that don't use computers and iPhones and stuff, wouldn't it? It wouldn't you wouldn't have super intelligent uh tool using library surfing um <laughs> is this making any kind of sense whatsoever uh yeah i guess the question is also i mean it's got the component about the uh, the way we use our fingers to manipulate things right so that we've got a sort of a double um adaption there we've got an enormous brain and we've got the dexterous fingers but i think that bit can be answered quite easily about birds right you know they use their beaks and you've only got to watch a crow or a um or a parrot manipulate yeah, feet yeah feet Parrots, yeah. Yeah. beaks and feet yeah. and they can do quite a good job of manipulating things quite well can't they they can so i don't i don't think there's a limitation there no no, but and and we are finding out that some of the groups of animals are more dexterous in terms of uh, like we've just been talking about monitor lizards. There's a recent study on monitor. There's monitor lizards that like reach into crevices and grab things with their hands using their fingers in sort of semi-opposable fashion. Um, but whether we would ever, you know, you'd still in a world without humans, you would have parrots being parrots and monitor lizards being monitor lizards and and capuchin capuchin monkeys are another good example. You know, they're extremely intelligent. They can solve loads of uh, sophisticated puzzles they're very smart um they use tools in the wild as and you could say the same for you know orangutans and chimpanzees and lots of other primates as well but in a world without humans they would still be doing parrot things or monitor lizard things or orangutan things right mm. so um we wouldn't we wouldn't have them evolving into uh, a human-like society if that's what if that's what he's getting at but the fact that we don't have other human-like societies suggests that you know this isn't something that was on the track for several lineages to evolve. You know. Oh yeah. yeah, the whole Conway Morris thing, Simon Conway Morris. Um, Simon Conway Morris, who is most known for his work on the weird animals of the Burgess Shale, wrote a book called. Oh damn it! That's no, that's not what it's called, but it's titled. <laughs> It's titled "Inevitable Humans" in in a in a something, but basically it's about the idea that you know we are inevitable. That mm. that that if and if and if which is a song by the Scissor Sisters, really good. Um, but, but we are we are destined to evolve, right? And that if our specific lineage of hominin, hominin, hominid, hominoids hadn't produced homo sapiens type creature then then there would be instead smart capuchins that look at porn on the internet and stuff mm. like that or and if there weren't monkeys then there would be smart dinosaurs that went shopping in supermarkets and can you edit that bit about porn out <laughs> <laughs> well that's hardly one of the crowning achievements of society but i think people know what i'm getting at. um and he this is bigged up in his book and it's also he's done a few tv interviews where he said that yeah definitely humans would have evolved no matter what and we can be and we can be pretty certain that on other worlds on other planets there, there are going to be human-like organisms i think like they will look like people and they will use hands and have big brains whereas yes. <clears throat> from now I think we can all appreciate that convergence is a pervasive and, you know, widespread and important theme in the history of life. It's everywhere. But does it go so far as to explain the... It's not as if, like, 
Well, things with wings that can fly, yeah, I can understand. That's going to crop up many times. But flat-faced bipeds with opposable thumbs and like all the specific features that make us humanoid um, outside the world of Star Trek, it's like, no, there's... I've said this before in the articles written about alleged big brain dinosaurs. It's like the, the features that, that make us what we are are the consequences of the specific history of our lineage. They're not like inevitabilities for a big brain tool user. So while that, so my point is that, yes, there are scientists who have argued that the humanoid body shape is in some way inevitable. We've got no reason to think that. And it's not as if, like I said, so, 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 sorry, my point was that, yeah, things with wings that fly have evolved, you know, like multiple times, even, even within tetrapods, which are a pretty homogenous group compared to many other groups of animals whereas how many can we say that the humanoid body shape has evolved numerous times no it's evolved once and is within a group of animals that are basically shaped like us anyway okay we, we're erect bodied and tailless but otherwise we're pretty similar to all the other primates so um there is another theme going on here and <clears throat> i have read this but i haven't checked it so you know we'll probably get follow-up on it but there is a trend uh, i've read that there is a trend in evolution um, towards bigger brain size. So if you look at over very long timescales, the brain size of tetrapods has generally increased. Um, and I, in, uh, that does suggest to me, because there are obviously tremendous evolutionary advantages to being where we are, you know, being technological species, that at some point another lineage might get there. Um, and I don't think there's uh, actually the question is not so much whether there would be people, but whether other lineages could be uh, fulfill our sort of niche. And I think that's sort of uh, a technological species. And I, I think the answer is yes. I don't I don't see why birds couldn't do it with their beaks and toes, or uh, uh, thousands of other things I haven't even thought of. Right? Yeah. Octopi, for God's sake, with their crazy tentacles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Octopodes. So, I, I, so, what's your answer? Uh, yes well, no. or no? <laughs> uh, well, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't get. I wouldn't say it's something as simple as giving a yes or no answer because I don't think there's anything inevitable about the idea that there should be a species that does what what we do. But so, in other words, I no, I don't think that there should be. If like we became extinct or if we hadn't evolved, no, I don't think the world would be ruled by a species like us. But in terms of whether it's plausible, absolutely is plausible, and that yes, we could well have another members of another lineage that are big-brained and sentient and tool-using and have prehensile digits and stuff. Uh, so your point about brain size, yeah, I, I think my, that's my understanding as well. And in fact, there are groups of other groups of big-brained animals that that overlap with with primates in terms of like brain to body size ratio, and also in terms of like their cognitive abilities and stuff. So. Truth for birds, um, parrots and corvids, you know, overlap with the 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 body size to brain size uh, ratio. Um, yeah. So much, so much so that you know, some people have jokingly referred to some of these birds as feathered apes in terms of like their um, well, their where they are in terms of their abilities and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so certainly as as a theoretical exercise, yes. Some other group could could evolve human-like way of doing things, but 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 my point is it's not inevitable. You can't ever know anything like that. Of course, this contingency, 
Stephen Jay Gould, wonderful life, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Okay. There we go. Answered. <laughs> <laughs> Tick box. Okay. Move on. Yeah, move on. Okay. Grant Harding asks, in keeping with your discussion on Pristacanthus, what's the status? Oh, God. What's the status of the gen genus Truodon? Uh, yeah, I heard that's... a rumour that it's a Nomen Dubium, which wouldn't be surprising since it's a toothpaste name, but confusingly I read a paper by Curry and Russell that used the name Truodon in a qualis. In a qualis. Yeah. As in, oh good, I've never actually said this out loud, Stenononicus. Yeah, or Stenonon Stenonicus. Well, I say Stenonicosaurus, you mean Stenonicosaurus. Yes, indeed I am ignoring the but... end of the word. <laughs> Yeah, but I, but I, but I wonder. Stenonychosaurus. Yes. I, I've never heard anyone say it, but I wonder whether we should say Stenonychosaurus because it means st st Steno means narrow. Not Nyco is claws because it means narrow yeah, claws. Yeah. Steno Stenonychos Stenonychosaurus maybe Stenonychosaurus is probably the best way of saying yeah, it. Stenonychosaurus. Yeah. Do you, do you want for formosus? Yeah. What? Yeah. Do you want to tackle this? You must have no. thoughts on it. No. <laughs> What's the deal here? <laughs> so, and if it so, is a nomen dubium, do we need to rename Truodontidae, Sornithoididae, like yeah. it used to be called? Hey, let's look at what Martin Nyack does. Just that. Just, <laughs> what does Nyack, he do? Nyack. Martin Nyack. Martin Nyack. Because <laughs> he's a great authority on these things. Uh, Truodontids. <laughs> Idiot. Chuck the book away. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was a joke. You might want to edit that. I don't want to offend him. Um, so Truodon is named for, is the problem is it's named for a single tooth, uh, 1856 from the Judith River formation, and uh, a single tooth is the type of species for Truodon formosus. Mm. And then over the years, people refer more and more stuff to Truodon, thinking it's the same species or a similar kind of animal. So you know for a while, do you know that Pachycephalosaurs, the dome-headed or bone-headed dinosaurs, yeah, they were regarded as uh, as species of Truodon because it was thought they had similar teeth. Yes. Then, yeah, then um, basically, it's a long and complicated story, but basically um, the situation we have now is that Truodon formosus, this tooth-based taxon, is, Jesus River Formation is, it's Campanian, is it middle Campanian? I think it's middle Campanian. Truodon formosus is supposed to go from the middle Campanian throughout the rest of the Campanian, then into the Maastrichtian, and then all the way through the Maastrichtian to the very end of the Maastrichtian. And you look at a lot of dinosaur literature, it talks about this animal hanging on for that long. Now, bearing in mind the original is, is a single tooth, is like, is, is, that, is that reasonable? I mean, most of the data that we have on dinosaurs indicates that they don't hang around for species longevity is ordinarily less than two million years. So 1.5 million years or so. Um, whereas this long record of Truodon Formosus indicates that it's meant to be hanging around for like 3.5 to 4 million years. Is that is that really right? Probably isn't. Probably what what's happened is probably people are lumping together things that have similar teeth. They have teeth similar to that original Truodon Formosus tooth from the Judith River Formation. But all these teeth actually probably represent different taxa. Is that original tooth... Diagnostic is Truodon a nomen dubium? Well, actually, probably not. That original tooth probably is diagnostic. There's various things to do with its particular arrangement of denticles. The what we call the work the you work out this thing called the denticle size difference index, the exact form and shape of the denticles, how closely they're spaced, that kind of stuff. No, Truodon formosus, based on that original tooth, probably is diagnostic. But some of the other things that have been assumed to be 
synonymous with Chirodon for Moses, or at least referable to Chirodon, probably aren't. So, for example, in recent years, people have resurrected Pectinodon baccarae, which was originally named by Ken Carpenter for a single tooth. There's a whole bunch of those things from the... Oh, nuts. Is it the Horseshoe Canyon Formation? There's a Anyway, there's a study that was published last year by Derek Larson and Phil Curry. It's in PLOS One, so it's freely available, where they did a big study of... They used morphometrics to look at like a huge sample of therapeutic teeth from Upper Cretaceous Sediments, North America. They argued that Truidon formosus should be regarded as specific to the Judith River Formation and the Dinosaur Park Formation, both of which are Campanian. But there's a bunch of supposed Truidon formosus stuff from the Horseshoe Canyon Formation, which is also Campanian. And they, they, what do they do with that? I should. I really should have written loads of notes on this, shouldn't I? Or have the paper out in front of me. You know, <laughs> people can go and check this out. If you weren't locked in the house. I wasn't locked in the house. Or didn't have access to the internet, because <laughs> like I said, it's online. Um, they, I think they said that the Horseshoe Canyon Formation, Truodon Formosus, is not Truodon Formosus. And then this leaves all of these Maastrichtian ones, all these Maastrichtian things that are said to be Truodon Formosus. Are they Truodon Formosus? Well... Probably not. And are they even truer on? Well, maybe, but not necessarily. And it's for this reason that Phil Curry and other people have, uh, well, they've used Inequalis, the name truer on it. Phil Curry has definitely used the name truer on Inequalis as recently as, as a 2005 paper where he used it. And what formation is, it's the old man formation. Yeah. Yeah, because... I'm pretty sure that's right. Stenonicosaurus is old formation, which is Campanian, not Maastrichtian. So, so even in the Campanian, maybe there are two or three Truodon species. Truodon formosus, maybe Truodon inequalis. This, this is not resolved at the moment, but the point is that the reason that people have said Truodon formosus is so wide-ranging is because they've just assumed that all these different mostly toothpaste, but not entirely <clears throat> toothpaste, they've assumed these different forms of truodontid are referable to that originally named species, and that may be incorrect. Hmm. Um, I think the answer then is that the tooth is fairly clearly a truodontid. The original one, it's probably diagnostic, although, as I said, it, my answer wouldn't vary based on that. You know, I think that truodontidae is still good as long as it's a truodontid. But it's even, it's probably a valid genus too, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the answer is that it's all still good. I mean, there might be a huge amount of um, more diversity there than we imagined for a while, but that's yeah. fine. Truodontidae is still good. Truodon's still good. And I think the, so there have been rumours kicking around online for a while that given that the type specimen is a tooth, should we do what seems like the sensible thing and ignore the tooth? And Because when we have Truodon in mind these days, we're not thinking of that single tooth. We no. are thinking of the good skeletal material described yeah. by Dale Russell and Phil Curry and others that for a time was known as Stenonychosaurus, Stenonychosaurus, however you want to say it. So some people have suggested, well, let's make the tooth, let's forget about the tooth, which means we forget about the name Truodon, and let's now go with the name Stenonychosaurus. But the better argument would be, well, no, 
now the name Churdon is so widespread in the literature, the sensible thing to do, if you were to get rid of the tooth, is to apply the name Churdon to the good skeletal material. Yeah. Um, however, the, my point is that in actual fact, no, it's not that that tooth. We shouldn't just like kick these specimens away and forget about them. There's, that's that's kind of a lazy thing. And again, there's a history of being very lazy in paleontology. People are saying, well, I can't be bothered to you know work this work out whether that tooth is really unique or not. But I'm just going to assume it's not. So let's just forget it. It's like you can't really do that. Well, you can, but you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. Well, but there is the whole problem that okay, it's even if it is diagnostic now. Uh, a tooth probably isn't enough because there could be something that varied in some other significant way but had pretty much identical teeth. This is not... I, yeah. I would say this is almost certain if you could find every single um, truodontid out there that you would find something where its teeth were indistinguishable but it was easily distinguishable by some other trait. Yeah. So I do think there is a general problem in trying to attach species genus taxonomy just to teeth. I do, or any isolated element. Mm. I, I do think there is a problem with that, but I don't. I don't have a solution. So yeah. no, and I, I, without sort, you know, to sort this one out, you'd have to go through the process of petitioning the ICZN and saying that you want to designate a, like a new type specimen, and and then what this means for the status of the the names, Stenonychosaurus, Stenonychosaurus, whatever. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I so, think we answered that relatively I satisfactorily. We, relatively satisfactorily, <laughs> and as as always, we are respond. We're referring to things here that aren't that you know work still needs to be done to sort this one out. But I I would be very confident that all of the things called truodon or called truodon formosus are not the same kind of truodontid. There's a huge amount of variation within these within these things. Uh, so size variation, as well as like you know anatomical details. You know that some of the Really cool thing. I think this has been touched on in um, a couple of TV projects involving a dinosaur revolution and stuff. Some of those late Maastrichtian uh, truodons from the far north, like from Alaska, are really, really big compared to the ones from, you know, uh, like uh, further south than Alberta. Like, you know, the ones from like Montana and that kind of stuff. Mm. The Alaskan ones are, are very large. Um, what does that mean? Bergman's rule in dinosaurs. I don't know. Just want to throw that out there. Okay. Right. Let's move on <laughs> to this incredibly important question, Darren. It's from Aaron Wells. Oh, You're waiting for this. I, yes. What that's... is the most flammable tetrapod? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I think it's a really good question, and I've put a lot of time and thought into it. And um, now, now, there's several different ways to answer this question. So when we say flammable tetrapod... Now, most tetrapods, if you throw a match at them, nothing's going to happen. They're not going to burst into flames. Mm -hmm. And we all know that hair and feathers will burn, but they're actually not at all flammable. In fact, people are genuinely interested in this. They've done a lot of research on this because, after all, hair has been used as packaging material for, for decades. People use you know, horse hair and camel hair and stuff in boxes. And... Obviously, feathers are used extensively, uh, you know, down in, in uh, pillows and stuff. So this has been studied a lot. And hair and feathers are among the least flammable uh, insulatory materials known to us, to people, mm. which I think is interesting. So my next thought was that, well, organisms with integument, uh, 
as, as opposed to the ones that just walk around as skeletons, yeah? Um, a lot of it's a sebaceous grease and oils and all these mm. things that are generated yeah. by organisms to, like, keep their, their hair or their scales or their, their feathers, uh, you know, pliable and in good condition. Those oils, sebum, the, the one that we produce to keep our hair supple and our skin in good shape, that is flammable. So it's like, and some animals are really greasy. Uh, if you go without, you know, any personal maintenance for a long period of time, you get very, very greasy hair. Humans can be really slimy, but there are m- much greasier animals than us. Um, you, some people should read the section in the Cryptozoological on Kelpies because we, we've got the idea in there that the Kelpie is covered in like a thick, sticky, greasy sebum that's, that makes its uh, pelage very... Um, very adhesive, and this is this was based on the fact that there are you know living mammals, tapirs and water chevrotins and um, some other uh, hoof mammals that have got really really greasy you know, waterproof pelage. So so I thought, well, the, sebum being an oil, is it flammable? And again, people have look, looked into this, and if you collect like a vat of it and try and set fire to it, again, it's got so much water in it that it's yeah, it'll burn, but it's pathetic. It's like it's really you'd really struggle to actually ignite it and get it to sustain a flame so i don't think there are really any animals we can think of where if you set fire to them yeah but many organisms don't regularly encounter uh propane or lighters or <laughs> <laughs> uh, naked flames naked flames um so there aren't really any, I don't think there are, so, so, so but that, that doesn't answer the question because he's saying what is the most flammable yeah. one, you know, not, not which is super flammable. <laughs> um, we, obviously we don't know, you'd have to go and burn a lot of things and, and that'd be quite harsh. But, um, but then may, maybe, maybe it's people because of like alcohol fumes and stuff like that. But the other, the other avenue I explored was what about internal fat stores and, in, and, and oil Indeed, stored in yeah. stomach and stuff like that? Because obviously that's a whole different avenue of way of thinking about it. It's already been extensively discussed on Twitter and Facebook, I think. So apologies if you've heard all this before. But, um, but obviously people have used um, the carcasses of seabirds, including penguins and orcs and petrels which are their flesh is very oil rich they have large quantities of oil in the stomach their feathers are relatively greasy people have used those animals to actually uh well as fuel sources so when um uh both in the the south penguins and in the the north atlantic with great orcs people started fires by actually using carcasses of penguins or great orcs as a fuel source so actually burn for the great orcs on the Funk Island colony, this famous enormous great orc colony, they actually boiled great orcs in fires um, perpetuated by great orc carcasses. So the only fuel source were dead great orcs, they were burning great orcs, which is, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things that I've always taken for granted reading about it, but you think about that, it's using bodies as a fuel source, because it's often quite hard to get, if you ever tried to barbecue meat or whatever, it's really hard to get flesh to, you know, carcasses, Dead I presume to... if they're dried out to a certain extent, uh, I think they would know, just older no, I... carcasses. You'd get that started with older carcasses. Right? Maybe uh, uh, they've still got the oil because that doesn't evaporate, but the the um the water is evaporated out to a certain extent. I can I can see that. Yes, that working. How, yeah, that I, I would agree. But the impression you get <clears> from what 
is they just went and collected like a, they bashed a load of 50 of them on the head and just put them in a pile and started a fire so that's the you know the impression you get so 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 due to oil in their stomach and their flesh I mean, bear in mind you know petrols have been used in this way as well and petrols have a very weird digestive system where they eat loads and loads of squid and fish and whatever and they actually break them down but they retain the lipids they're able to retain the lipids in their stomachs and then f- use that as a super high energy food source that they feed to their juveniles which they visit you know there are some petrols again this is covered in several articles on tetrabodzology from a couple of years back there are some petrols that they they've got like a chick because they they can only afford to raise one they fly out to sea and they're out at sea for like you know a week and they do a round trip of something stupid like a thousand kilometers and they come back and they can then give it like one enormous meal of super um, condensed, super nutritious fish and squid oil, which they've stored in their stomach. But as a, as a consequence, it means that they are st- saving each bird, which, you know, we're talking about small birds, 200 grams or whatever, or about that. They are saving a huge quantity of, of oil in their, their stomach, which again would make them a valuable f- fuel source. You got one and like milked out for a bit of stomach. So, so there's that, and then there's whales as well. Yes. Whales, whales being um, most famously, people of course have used sperm whale um, oil, which is the heated up um, stuff from the spermaceti organ, which is this incredible giant block of lard-like stuff kept in its head. Uh, and the the um, kept warm and used as an oil that's said to be well, it's it's obviously it's able to like sustain um, like oil lamps and stuff. Yes. Um, before before saying any more on that, I would I would need to you know read up to say anything intelligent about it. But um, but I'm just pretty sure that people have used whale oil from various whales as again as a. Uh, if it yes. burns, it's flammable. So again, we're not saying that you could set fire to a live animal, <laughs> but um, but they have a material inside them which is obviously highly flammable. Yes, and uh, so that we have at least that's good because we've got several animals there which we know we know people use products from them or their whole body as as um, as a fuel source. So yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, but uh, they do have a lot in common, don't they? They're all um, they're all. Uh, what you call pelagic animals, I guess. They're, yeah. They're feeding on ocean-going things. I guess it's something about the way you do that is by collecting oil, right? Well, no, because whales, that's not really what they're doing, is it? That's for insulation purposes and stuff. It's a bit trickier. Hmm. It's difficult to know. And, and if the... Um, I'm going to have to go and read about this. Again, I haven't done research on this, but I, I think the oil the oil used from, from sperm oils is from the spermaceti yeah. organ, which isn't anything to do with insulation. In fact, it's been a long mm. debate as to what it is for. What it is for, yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it's been suggested because it's, because its buoyancy changes a lot according to its temperature. So when it's cool, it's uh, denser and you know hard and waxy, and when it's warm, it's light and um, fluidic. Um, it's been suggested that they might deliberately cool the spermaceti organ in order to make themselves more dense and therefore negatively buoyant. And in order to be positively buoyant and rise to the surface, they might deliberately Heat warm it. their yeah. spermaceti yeah, by pumping blood through it. But that's, um, 
that's a theory, that's a hypothesis even, that was put out there in the 60s by a well-known uh, sperm whale specialist whose name I've forgotten right now, um, Caldwell, whatever. And, uh, and it's been challenged since by people that have shown that his argument just can't, just can't work because it involves his argument, his idea involves the, the animals actually snarfing huge quantities of cold water into the nasal cavity and distributing it around the spermaceti organ. And it's been argued that that just can't work. They, they can't do that and they don't do that. And also, the why were we talking about sperm whales recently? We were talking about... Uh, blowholes? Oh, that's right. It was because of atomis, atavisms and stuff yeah. like that. And I said then that the, the two nasal passages in the sperm whale are really weirdly asymmetrical. One of them is more or less a straight line. It goes diagonally from the... Uh, well, from the throat region in a straight line up to the blowhole at the front left of the head. And the other one is semicircular and goes around the outside of the spermaceti organ, a completely different route. And this argument relies on the idea that by snarfing in, that is the technical term, snarfing, by snorting water in through those two nasal passages, that's enough to control the form of the spermaceti organ. And the argument and the counter argument is well no it's not because these are just two tiny little passages mm. through a giant block that can weigh a couple of tons it's not enough to make a difference so i think a, the best argument for use of the spermaceti organ is that basically it's a battering ram and that it's uh, probably um its evolution is probably driven by sexual selection it probably is to do with like smashing one another in, in fights and that sort of stuff which it might have I, I bet it has several benefits I'm sure it does, yeah. But, but, but it's also probably there... got hydrodynamic benefits. So Christian Chul has a series of photos, and I will be putting those in the show in the show notes so that if you're listening on a computer or something, you can go and have a look at these photos. So as the description is in Danish, but he has provided us with a rundown of the story. So the story is that the crow attacked. The crow was attacked by a common buzzard. The fight goes back and forth until several other birds, especially magpies, come in and help the crow. Finally, the buzzard t gives up and takes off, and the crow survives. Is this type of intraspecific altruism common? And what kind of evolutionary background? Oh, sorry. <laughs> and what could the evolutionary background for such behaviour be? Right. Um, now I've looked at the photographs, and we definitely see a buzzard attacking a juvenile corvid. But I would like to know whether the juvenile corvid is, did he say carrion crow? Or just a crow? Just a crow. Just said a, just said a crow. Okay. It's not possible from the photographs to tell whether this is a juvenile, by crow he means carrion crow, um, because... It might be a juvenile carrion crow, but it might be a juvenile magpie. It's actually hard to tell from the photos. But yes. whatever. Okay, let's say I'm, I'm sure that the people, I mean, this was a, a Danish ornithology site. The people here are going to know what they're talking about. So uh, let's assume that it is a carrion crow. If you look at these photographs, have, have a look at them because there's, there's ones where, there's a good one where the buzzard is like standing over the juvenile that it's attacked. The juvenile is looking upwards at the buzzard, and it's in that picture, it looks to me more like it's a juvenile magpie. But whatever, let's say it is a juvenile crow. Well, we still have 
this group mobbing thing where members of different species will work together to mob predatory birds. It's well known that, you know, lots of birds, uh, passerines, you know, finches and tits and, 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 other, and all kinds of small birds will gang up and scold or chase um, hawks or owls. Um, I, I saw a really a fantastic example of this once. I saw a, a sparrowhawk pursued across a, a forest clearing by going on for, you know, it looked like a huge number, but probably probably only 15 to 20 uh, passerines of, of several different species, sort of all like, all tweeting and scolding it. It's called scolding. They don't like it. They're, sort of, they're saying, go away, go away, you know, clear out here. Obviously, they're bringing attention to it. So I think on that basis that if we do see a raptor, in this case a buzzard, attack a, another bird, in this case a juvenile, apparently a carrion crow, then I think it's, you know, if there are magpies around, they're going to want a piece of that. They're going to get involved. They don't care. I don't, I, don't, I don't think this is necessarily a case of altruism. Maybe it is, but I don't think it is. I think they're just seeing, look, there's a, there's a hawk attacking another bird. Let's give the hawk a hard time, and that's what they're doing. So, that um, is a kind of altruism. I think you've just provided the explanation, though, right? So... I mean, I think that a lot of altruistic behaviour comes from this sort of thing. It's in everyone's mutual benefit for this to happen, right? Yeah. So it's the other, pure, the other, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. It's mm. not pure altruism, but it it does have an altruistic effect. But mm. uh, but ultimately, it could be. I mean, it could be a perfectly selfish thing that's explained very well by natural selection. So, um, yeah, <clears throat> I, and I and I kind of think that's, yeah. That's what's going on. The, That's what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. just uh, it's a frequent thing that these birds do is they mob predatory birds just to get them out of there. Yep. Yep. It is interesting, though. That's an interesting behaviour that, you know, that there's several species can get together and do that. Um, mm. But, yes, so what we're seeing is actually a more common behaviour. It's just because the baby bird was there. It looked like several types of... Um, other birds were trying to protect it, which is not exactly what was going on. Yeah, so all, all the birds involved in the mobbing are all definitely um, Eurasian magpies. Um, but whether they're like, yeah, whether they're defending or whether they're coming to the, the aid of a of a juvenile magpie or a juvenile of another corvid is it kind of I, the the circumstances suggest that it's going to be a juvenile magpie because a baby uh, carrion crow. The the adults would be presumably around. I mean, they obviously they mob raptors as well, mm. but, but I don't know. But yeah, the whole phenomenon of mobbing predators is very interesting. I mean, it's 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 most familiar, like I say, due to passerines and other birds mobbing raptors and owls. But um, it's also seen uh, directed towards snakes, big cats, um, mammals like uh, meerkats that that they um. They've been filmed exhibiting mobbing behaviour towards, you know, the, um, like harassing snakes and things like that, drawing attention to predators. Mm. Um, yeah, there you go. good answer. Answered, in fact, I would say. Yep. There you go, Christian. They're not Thank saving the baby bird. They're just being selfish. <laughs> <laughs> We have still, we've got three more questions, Darren. And I'm wondering whether we should kick one of them off until the next episode, because... Well, yeah, how long have we been talking for? Uh, it's hard to tell because of all the stupid stops and starts, but I guess we're up to about an hour and ten minutes now. 
Yeah, I think. Well, so this question from a nonny moose. Yeah. Um, that one about otters or mosasaurs. <laughs> they want a themed episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's not something we're gonna. That's not like a two-minute bish bash bosh thing, is it? That could that could be like a. Um, but but we'll we'll have to come back to that one. Yeah, I think we might kick that one off until next next time because yeah, yeah, because uh, we yeah we could do a little more substantial on that and we don't really have time this time. Okay. Um. So and the walking with dinosaurs thing. I mean, we, yeah. we've we've mentioned that quite a few times. What do you want to do about that? Um, elaborate or rant? Um, yeah. Well, I still haven't seen it, so maybe we'll do that next time. Let's okay. do that next time. All right. Um, all right. Now you're on, Darren. Sing it. Right. Okay. I I think I know it, but I'm a really bad singer. I don't really like singing. You do it all the time. You love singing. I'll do it now, and you can decide whether you keep it or not. Tetsu time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll go to fun and distant lands with John the dog and Darren the human. The f- Fun will never end. It's Tenzu time. There we go. <laughs> that should be good enough. So. Yep. <laughs> Great. Should we do a better one without you saying, without you swearing in it? Or should we keep that? No, we've got to keep that. Um, <laughs> John the dog. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask the question, um, the one... Um, so we will leave the walking with dinosaurs one. Well, maybe that's it. That's it, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, that's it. Right. See, so, I'm marking them as we go. You see, we've got, we've yes, got the mouse and the walking with dinosaurs one, and I think we'll do that next time because I really should walk watch the walking with dinosaurs thing. Yes, I can. So thank I can, you um, to. Uh, sorry, go on. I can provide a rant on that then. Yes. Although it does specifically ask you to rant about it, but well, because you're a, you're I a good rant. Well. I hadn't seen it. Okay, so with uh, all the people that gave us cash for questions this time, John Turmel, Blake Smith, Christian Jewell, Necropolis Studios, if that is your real name, <laughs> <laughs> Aaron Wells, Mike at Terranscapes, and Grant Harding. Thanks to all those people. Yeah, thank yeah. you. We enjoyed that very much. And uh, yeah, this thing is questions. kind of working out, cash for questions. But yeah, we're yeah. well, so... so uh, I've got to go let the dog out. <sighs> I did the thanking. Now we move on to Godzilla trailer. Yes. So you've seen yes. it. Yes. Yes, I have now seen it. Isn't it awesome? Uh, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Let me see. I don't know. I don't know whether it is awesome yet. I'm not quite seeing why everyone's so excited. And I think we're all setting ourselves up for a fall here. I mean, the trailer is awesome. I don't care about the movie. <laughs> no, the trailer's okay. The trailer's okay. I'm a bit worried about its, its intense seriousness because I just don't think that works in monster films. Oh, what could be more serious than Godzilla? <laughs> uh, but what the, I like the fact that they've now they've developed in a whole bunch of you know new stuff to be considered. The the the, the kind of it's a spoiler for people that haven't seen the trailer. You have to put spoilers for trailers, I don't know. But the, the whole no, idea that no. well, all the, all the stuff they're saying about the uh, Pacific nuclear tests—they weren't tests; they're trying to kill it, all that kind of stuff. And and did you notice all the other creatures that we saw in the trailer? 
we don't just see Godzilla, we see possibly as many as five different kaiju, and certainly three. There's uh, some difference of opinion on, on, on this. Did you, did you catch this? Oh, no. Oh, what are you doing with your time? You haven't studied it. <laughs> you go back frame by frame, okay? Well, maybe you're more like an average person then. You haven't paid attention to this. But there's a bit when, okay, so you know the Godzilla universe is obviously populated by a diversity of, of kaiju of different forms. Well, the people behind this have said that they are going to have, and we already know from, bear in mind, this is the third trailer. We know from the first trailer, the Oppenheimer kind of, the, uh, the one that was Streisand did, um, we know from that one that there, was, that there are going to be fights with other monsters because we saw a dead creature of some sort that obviously wasn't Godzilla. Um, so, and they've said that we're going to have other monsters in, in this movie. There's a bit when, in the newest trailer, there's a bit when you see a giant hooked spindly limb crash down on the roof of a building. Uh, it seems to have uh, luminescent red markings uh, on its on its side we, we that, that definitely isn't godzilla and the speculation has been there's an article about uh, there's an article at io9 about this they said maybe we're going to see like a new version of gigan which is like one of the main godzilla movie monsters the one with like the big hook like arms sort of the most recent versions is kind of like a cyborg shiny metal big visor on his head um maybe we're going to see a new version of gigan but Probably not, because there are these creatures that are being termed mutos, these kind of like weird mutated kind of arthropod kind of hybrid type creatures, which I think are going to be in the new movie. And um, they seem to have yeah a combination of like arthropod-like and reptile-like traits. And this could well be a spindly limb from a muto. And then, you know the bit, did you notice the bit where you saw jets falling out of the sky? Mm. What did you think was going on there? I don't know. Tell me. Yeah, you don't know, right? That's an aerial battle with a giant flying monster that uses some weapon like, I don't know, uh, ultrasonic bursts of disabling sound or something. Because we see a couple of instances in the trailer where we see a giant flying winged thing, pretty much like your pterodactyl from the T-shirt. And and so are we seeing, is it Rodan? Rodan is a giant kind of, he's meant to be a modern day, pterosaur pterosaur the size of a jumbo jet is there going to be a rodan in this movie because we definitely see a giant flying sky creature and then did you notice that statue of liberty Mm. you see the statue of liberty in the trailer yeah what do you think about that huh that it's the the arms broken off it's not the statue of liberty isn't it it's no it's the statue of liberty in las vegas ah it's not the the statue of liberty it's the little one in Las Vegas yeah. because, because New York, first New York. Off, yeah, the back the background. I thought that's weird because no, and I think I noticed straight away because the back background you could see is um, desert, and there's not much of that in New York. Hmm. So, um, yeah, there could a, be in a post-apocalyptic kaiju world. But before that, obviously, having been to Las Vegas, um, I know it well there's before that you did that's see where all the podcast money goes yeah <laughs> you did see the las vegas strip you can see like the hotels and stuff and there's obviously yep. significant kaiju induced damage there and i tweeted this early this morning i said well i'm very pleased to see that because having been to las vegas i would like it to be destroyed i don't do dislike it immensely it's a horrible place take um, that las vegas so yeah uh, god yeah so uh 
Yes, I'm a little bit worried because we saw this kind of hype for um, what's its name? Um, God, help me out here, Darren. What's it called? I don't know what you're talking about at the moment. Oh, the last kaiju film. Oh, Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. We saw exactly this sort of hype, and I, although I did, people think I think it was a terrible film. I don't think it was. I just didn't think it was a very good film. I didn't. And I'm a bit worried that this one's going to be a bit like that. It's not going to be a good film. It's going to have a lot of fascin- interesting monsters in it. It's going to have good creature design, that sort of thing. But basically, it's not going to be a good film. And that's what I'm worried about. Because of its tone. And I would... I mean, I get, I get why they're trying to get away from the sort of jokey monster film type of thing. But it's very difficult to take a series of giant battling creatures too seriously there's got to be some sort of knowingness there and it just doesn't feel like there is i don't know i don't know it'll be visually spectacular and hopefully it won't all take place and the trailer indicates it doesn't all take place in the dark like pacific rim did Mm. which was i thought quite annoying actually um so yeah, I think visually it might even it might be better than Pacific Rim, which would be nice. But I, I do hope there's some sort of I do hope there's a good film behind it. And nothing I've seen so far indicates that there is. But you can't tell that from trailers. You just can't. You, you have no indication of that from trailers. I mean the f- yeah the fact that they've the fact that they've gone to the trouble of bringing in some uh, Pacific Rim used um, a bunch of people that were. I, th- I hope it's fair to say they were pretty much unknown prior to the movie. You know, they weren't big movie people. Whereas mm. this has got pe- this has got people that this has got actors who are quite well known and have been in mm. big things. Yeah, but what's lots it, of these people are in complete turkeys, aren't they? Yeah, so. well, yeah but Brian, what's his name? Cranston. I've, I've never watched Breaking Bad. I haven't seen a single episode. But yeah. uh, that everybody talks about that all the time as if it's the best thing ever. Ken Watanabe. I've watched. I watched Inception again just a couple of days ago. He's like a big... And Juliette Binoche, she's in Chocolat, which is one of the best movies of all time. <laughs> and, jo- and Johnny Depp's in that, and he's in loads of famous movies. So... so, so <laughs> QED, um, it'll be great. No, exactly. I, I, look, I, I, I would love it if this was also a good film. It's just yeah. I'm, uh, I'm not seeing anything that tells me that it is also a good film, apart from being a visually spectacular thing with John. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, yeah, you uh, just can't you can't say anything no. from from a trailer like mm. that. So that's not my well, concern. I'm sure and we also, will dissect it in depth yeah. once we've actually seen it. At least you've seen it. Oh, I think I think it does it does it very good. It's got a lot of interesting ideas in it and the treatment of Godzilla. Um, and it, yeah, there's going to be some cool stuff in it. The, the bit, the bit where the, the animal is surging through the water, and we actually see aircraft carriers get kind of coasted out of the way. I thought that was awesome. Really, really, really nice. The, that, um, that surging through the water thing—that's in um, the 1993 Godzilla. That was the first trailer they ever put out. Yeah, it was a the water hump going up the pier. Was it the first trailer they put out? I thought they put out the one beforehand of people in a museum looking at a Tyrannosaurus skeleton, and then a giant foot crashes through and stomps on the Tyrannosaurus. I think that was the first trailer. But I don't if- think it was because I think the the water trailer was made before that because they didn't have any creature design at all. Okay, fair enough. 
Mm. We should have a big. We should have a big argument about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, probably, I think yeah. a Godzilla special is in order, probably. A whole tetra, tetra podcast about um about yes. Godzilla. Well, we could well do that's it. why that's why I thought even just talking about this trailer is enough to you know provides a few minutes of a few minutes of discussion because there's yes. a, there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. There's a bit when you see um what the the, the back of Godzilla in a tropical Pacific atoll setting. Mm. And uh, that doesn't work at all because the water there is almost certainly going to be, I don't know, 10, 20 metres deep. And yet we're yeah. only seeing the top of Godzilla's back. That, that, that didn't work for me. Maybe he's dug in. It seems to be moving at speed through the water maybe, rather than just... Maybe a very quick burrower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Godzilla was a... Borrower in the Gino movie, which is what were they thinking? The, the idea that it could hide on New York, but also the fact that they've put this like the, uh, what's the name for that music? There's a name for this kind of real sort of you know uh, wailing kind of disturbing kind of music. They've made it real kind of scary apocalyptic kind of mm. thing going on there, and 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 also the fact that there's this like there's a there's a, the idea of a conspiracy referred to in the movie. The fact that Cranston's character is saying that you're lying to us. That wasn't an yeah. earthquake, because it's clearly you're keeping giant <laughs> monsters secret from us. Um, we need to know. That's that was an interesting thing. Um, and what was something else I wanted to say has escaped me temporarily, which I know is always good for a podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but but yeah, people should definitely check it out if they haven't already. I think I've already said I'm kind of surprised that it's not trending on Twitter. You look at what the stuff that trends on Twitter. I think is just an indictment of why humanity <laughs> needs to go extinct. So currently trending on Twitter is stuff like Rebecca Ferguson. Who is Rebecca Ferguson? Who is Rebecca know. Ferguson? Good. Okay. Ukraine. Yes, that should be trending on Twitter because that's important. Glastonbury. Yeah, I don't know. I, could, I can understand why that trends on Twitter. Loose women. That should not trend on Twitter. What are you doing tweeting about that? You sad, sad stupid monkeys That's this, hang, on, hang on hang on hang on darren <laughs> people are not allowed to tweet about that but tweeting about what's probably going to be a mediocre film at best just because it has got godzilla in it that's fine that's what should be trending this is, on twitter it's, is, godzilla is mediocre is, nerd films it's cornerstone key <laughs> cultural event this is a cultural <laughs> event this is like nothing is going to be the same after this so just the fact that the new trailer is out we see godzilla that alone should be trending on twitter and people aren't talking about that so (laughs) (laughs) everyone should be exactly like us we should start our own twitter darren yeah teta (laughs) i was thinking of something ruder but that's good um yes Okay. Now, right. Should right. we should we do cheapskate questions? Ah, uh, cheapskate questions. Yeah. So we'll we'll come back to Godzilla again. There's lots more to say about it. It's intelligent stuff. Yeah. So should I just? Do, do but I don't think we've these? got time this episode. I think we can. This can be a running thing. The, yeah, yeah, the Build yeah. up to Godzilla and then finally seeing. Yes. So so the build up to Godzilla. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Facebook. I'm on the computer where the down arrow doesn't work, which makes it hard to navigate things on Facebook. Lowelly <laughs> Le- says it's one a.m. I'm asleep. That's a lie. David Godfrey says, have you seen 
uh, and there's a link to a BBC Four TV series called Secrets of Bones, which I forget the name of the guy who's presented it. I should know it. I follow him on Twitter and stuff. I've communicated with a few times. I should know what this is. Uh, I should have watched this. I haven't. Um, I, don't really love what, I don't really watch TV, but I should check that out. Raven. No, Raven says, Raven Amos, I have a question about troll. Oh, now, there's a few things specifically about, you know, paleo art and you. Yeah. Uh, Raven, Raven says, uh, question about Triceratops skin. There have been several different types of impressions that have been catalogued, but is it, nowhere, is it known where on the body the individual impressions correspond to? Now, if we start talking about this, this is like one of those 10 to 15 minute discussion things. What do you reckon? I, no, we don't have time. Okay, we don't have time. We'll come back to that. Nathan Remember, Carroll. Cash for questions. Cash for questions. Yeah, Nathan <laughs> provides a bit more information about it. Uh, you know what? Funny thing is, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go on a little tangent. So there I am. Facebook's open. And Nathan, a new message comes up from Nathan's <laughs> that says, it comes from the hip region. <laughs> and seen, seen out of context, excuse me, if, if, if you know Nathan Carroll, then, you know, that maybe you'd understand why he would say that. But um, I just thought, Nathan, what are you talking about? And then he followed up later with, you're just jealous of my dance moves. And, and we went on to discuss knee sweat and other matters. Uh, more, lots more on Triceratops skin. Loads more uh, information there. There's a lot to say. Um, speaking of SCP and dancing, I have some blackmail videos from you last year. That doesn't concern me. It might concern me. I did dance. Um, Yunwoo. Yunwoo, question for John Conway. John Conway, why? Why, John Conway? Why do you reconstruct body feathers of most Manoraptorans with panaceous feathers instead of downy fuzz? It's not that I have a problem with your artwork, though. They are among my favourites. I am, an over, I am overall curious as to why many people reconstruct many non-avian dinosaur body feathers just like those of flying birds. Again, do you want to do that now, or should we leave it? Because again, well, I that's think a whole... these, are, these are big things. Yeah, yeah. We Rebecca. probably should do something about appearance and stuff. But yeah, anyway. Mm, Groomo, Rebecca Groom uh, asks about the uh, halluses. Uh, that's the plural of hallux. The, the hallux, uh, and th that's the, the the first digit, the one on the inside of the foot in um, uh, Manoraptorans. And Rebecca also asks questions about reconstructing extinct animals, which again is a ripe. Uh, fertile area. Ivan Kwan, thank you. Says thanks to me for finishing the cro the crocodile series on Tetsu. Yeah, thanks. Um, and when am I going to do ga gharials and alligatoroids? Uh, and makes a very, very. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm going to have to go through this really quickly. There's too many. Jamie, any impressions are from various sections of the dorsum. They have as fractures. Triceratops stuff. That's Triceratops stuff. Andrea Cow asks for more stem tetrapods. Um, Marcus Good. We have got the Squamazoic because they're going to be an Avizoic. <laughs> Marcus Buller says the World War New Zealand was an Avizoic until 1500. Good point. And so on and so on and so forth. Um, and Twitter. Oh, too many tweets. I can't go through them all. There's been a lot of discussion about the new tape here. Um, Don't forget your T-shirt, people. T-shirts. There's te <laughs> ah T-shirts. Well, thank you to the people who have, and seriously here, people who have been photographing themselves wearing Tetsu Podcast T-shirts, yeah. or have or have managed to appear on television wearing them. I think that <laughs> yeah, gets the well, prize. Yeah. Um, 
Thank you to the many, many people who have done that. We've seen them all over the place. Um, <laughs> I keep meaning to get the blog post of that together, and I will. I will this time. <clears throat> yeah, probably go yeah, up at so the same time as this episode, sometime in the next 10 days, because there's so much editing to do. Good luck. Let's well, okay. So, so let's wind down now. So, thank you yep. to Cash for questions. Do you want to? Uh, no, let's not do that because you'll end up begging people for money again. But um, so, as I said, I'll say it again. I said it at the start of the show. People should check out Tetsu Time. Time.tetsu.com. Check out Ethan Kosak's Tetrapodology comic. Comic.tetsu.com. Um, if you're interested in Tetrapodology and any of the stuff we talk about in the podcast and covered Tetrapodology, the blog, you might be interested to know there's a book called Tetrapodology Book One. I think it's pretty much out of print. You've got to buy them real quick before they go. And if uh, also, people should still buy our book called Yesterday's, which is still available from all good digital retailers of the bad ones as well. Yeah. And also, CryptoZoologicon Volume One, which uh, when I see a new review, I do post them. Uh, well, I, I tweet about them or whatever. There was a, a, a really interesting one appeared the other day, which gave it I don't know, four and a half stars out of five. It's kind of funny. So there's a couple of there's a couple of reviews where people have given it four or four or four and a half stars, and they've said stuff like, "I would have given it five stars if it was if it had more science in it," because they they really like the, the sciencey stuff. So um, yes, we are. Yeah, Space we're still working though, on. Of course. Yeah. If people yeah. want to pay thirty, forty pounds a book, then they can have more science. <laughs> yeah. There is a Tetrapodology Facebook page. Please go and like the Facebook page. It needs more likes. I tweet at... And I thought they smell bad. On the outside! At Tetzoo. <laughs> and Tetrapodology is a blog currently hosted at Scientific American. Right. Oh, yes. I'm at johnconway.co. Um, where you'll find links to my Twitters and my Facebooks. Um, I have a blog at log.conway.co, which is a Tumblr blog, so you can follow me on Tumblr. Um, thanks to all the people that donated, um, especially recurring donations. Recurring donations are the best, and I think um, at some stage we're going to figure out something special we can do for people who give us, who do the recurring donations. Not really sure what that will be yet. Give us some ideas, maybe. You know, if you're a recurring donator and you think what sort of perk you'd like, um, yeah, well, we'll try and think. An of intimate something. dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, if you pay our expenses, we'll fly out to anywhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that it? Is that it? I think that's pretty much covered everything. Mm. Uh, so just thank you to people that supported us, and we can't do this unless you do, basically. So. <laughs> that's true, yes. <laughs> so keep it up, and we appreciate it. All right. We're we done. We're done. Is this mess finally over? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>